Hey fam, what's going on? Jeff Opachaw here. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. Thank you once again for tuning in to our wonderful show. Nay, I say the greatest podcast perhaps ever produced by mankind, with the exception of How I Built This, when it's a good episode. Otherwise, we're the very best. So we're grateful that you took the time to tune in. We hope you'll join us at thisweekinmormons.com and on our Facebook page and subscribe to this show if you have never done so. That would be totally awesome. Or I believe, as they say in Dutch, something like Tutzens, if my old friend Joe, who will hear this, will correct me shortly. Anyway, the man laughing in the background there, none other than America's sweetheart, Devin Thorpe. What's up, man? <laughs> Sorry, I, I enjoyed America's sweetheart just a little too much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Did it you ever see honor. the mo- Did you ever see the movie America's Sweethearts with John Cusack and Julia Roberts? I'm sure I did because I've never missed a Julia Roberts movie. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen when it came out in like 2001. Watched it again recently in the past couple of years. Kind of stupid, but hey, you know, t- taste change. What can yeah, I say? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Life goes on. Anyway, yeah. Another busy week in Latter-day Saint news. Man, last week we had so much going on and a lot of what's happened this week is sort of fallen, uh, you know, is uh, going on in light of the same things we've already discussed. Uh, but as we've further developed things about coronavirus and temples and all, all kinds of crazy things happening that we'll get into. Anyway, but Devin, Love checking in with everybody. How's your life? What's going on? How well, are things? Uh, life is good. Things are good. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, you kind of have, know. Have you, have you found your purpose now that your 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 show is done? Your podcast is over. Yeah. What, it, it's been a, an arduous task to figure out what is next in my life. But a variety of things conspired to convince me Um to run for Congress in Utah. Wait, what? <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're running for Congress, like yes. the United States Congress? The United States Congress. Uh, okay. okay, well, this is interesting news. Yeah, yeah. So you- uh, I was not aware of this. All right, so um, tell us, you know, I'm all about free time, so whoever you're running against is also welcome to come on this show. So tell us about Devin Thorpe yeah. for Congress. So, uh, yeah, so uh, I'll be running for the district uh, that includes South Salt Lake, Eastern Utah County, Wasatch County, uh, Carbon, Emory, Grand, and San Juan counties. But, you know, our audience is probably mostly from, well, includes a lot of people in Utah County. And, the, and so I will... I will be the future congressman. So that's Utah's, that yeah. th- that's the third district. The then, third right? district, yeah. That's Utah where, three, home of Jason Chaffetz, my friend. You've got yes. some big shoes to fill. Yes. Well, of course, Jason is gone now. Well, but yes. And we, and we lament that fact daily. <laughs> He's an ever-present memory uh, on Fox News, though. So we, we didn't yeah, really know, lose him. We just traded him. We just, you probably actually see more of him now in the homes throughout Utah County on TV than anyone ever yeah. did. When he I don't know, that's how out. he got the job on Fox News. He was he was on Fox News all the time when he was in Congress. Yeah. Got to work. Uh, so that's so that's true. So you are. Um, uh, first of all, congratulations. This is an interesting yeah. endeavor. Um, congratulations now, when ass- I win. Now I'm so I'm assuming Devin, based on our exchanges throughout the years and the time we've been doing this together, I'm assuming you're running as a Democrat. I am running as a Democrat. That is okay. correct. In yeah. Utah County, no less. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, that is. I guess that's the question anyone's going to ask. I mean, John Curtis currently represents that district, former mayor of Provo and a former Democrat himself. So yes. I don't think I don't I don't think he's quite in the mold of uh, his predecessor, Mr. Chaffetz, for example. No, no he's um, got a little different mindset. He, he's a great guy. Uh, yeah, it would not be hard for me to write uh, fawning uh, campaign commercials for John Curtis because he's genuinely a good guy. Okay, so now put on your opponent hat. Why do you want to? take John Curtis's job away from him and why is he no longer worthy of that? And why should he go back to Provo and be the mayor again and leave yeah, us alone? Yeah. Well, it, you know, that, that is a fair question and it's been a difficult one to answer because he uh, is a good guy. Uh, he's both a good human being and a, a reasonably good congressman. I, I don't want to complain about him, but uh, I am passionate about three things, and you and I have talked about them before, but I'm passionate about eradicating poverty, improving global health, and fighting climate change. And although John Curtis and I probably agree in principle on almost every aspect of those topics, John is constrained by his party affiliation to vote in ways that don't allow him to really vote his conscience, I believe. And so I think it's important for us to vote for a Democrat who's actually a member of the Democratic Party so that your representative can vote his conscience uh, and not vote against the interests of uh, the people of the district. That's kind of how I come at this. So are you alleging that John Curtis is a Democrat in Republican clothing out of political convenience because I, of where he resides? I don't know, but I, I really truly believe that he and I agree on many, many things, but he doesn't vote the way he talks. That's, that's how I see it, uh, because he is, he is a smart thinking man. And, and like I say, I think we agree on many, many things. Okay. So... So you agree on many things. This is this is almost like if you've ever watched Parks and Rec, you're almost like Bobby Newport right now. You're just like Leslie. You're the best. You're the best, Leslie. You're awesome. <laughs> Leslie's great. And then you forget you're running against him. Yeah, but, that's, um, right. that's right. Yeah. So uh, okay, so he's he, he's a good guy. I think by all accounts, John Curtis does seem to be a stand-up man. I don't know him well. I've yeah. lived in Provo for a very long time, and when I lived in Provo, I was at BYU, and I didn't know who the mayor was, nor did I care. But um, which is sad because I was a poli sci major. I should have been more involved in you know municipal affairs at yeah. the time. It's funny how academic college feels sometimes and removed from the real world. Oh, totally. I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so a third of Provo, of course, can't even. It's not just, and of course, your district isn't just Provo. I believe the third, like a lot of districts in Utah, the third district has the main Wasatch part of the Wasatch core, and then I think it just fans out to yep. the southeast or yep. so down yep. through a lot of the rural parts of the. Yeah, exactly. So it, it really is a, a mishmash of constituencies uh, when you have, uh, you know, several different Native American communities with varied interests. Uh, you have, uh, you know, ranchers and farmers. Uh, you have people in the Moab area down in Grand County that uh, make their living from tourism uh, and, you know, very directly off the national parks. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you've got uh, people in Carbon County who are uh, many of them traditionally coal miners, although very few of them still do that. Their their history is all around the extraction of coal. Um, and then, of course, you've got uh, Wasatch County, 
which is just booming with economic growth. And they're dealing with all the stresses of that, including the annoyance of lots and lots of private jets flying in and out because the the folks who fly their private jets into Park City like to land in Wasatch County over near Heber. So you've got all these interesting issues around the, the district. So it, it isn't a homogenous group. It's uh, it's a very diverse group of people and interests. Will you make, um, I forgot the name of the road, what the Sundance Parkway, isn't it, isn't, when you're going through the canyons out there, isn't one of them a toll road at some t- points in time? Will you make that free for all the people? Will you also reopen the Nutty Putty Caves? Uh, I'm quite sure the Nutty Putty Caves question won't be, uh, Devin, there's a strong Nutty Putty constituency (laughs) and you need to take this seriously and not denigrate Uh, your constituents. Yeah. I I just think it's probably not a federal issue. Uh, it's an important issue, just not a federal one. Oh, I'm sorry. So you don't want to represent the interests of the third district. You're more interested in whatever Washington. You just no, want no, to no. be part of no, the no, swamp. No, no, uh-huh. no, 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 no. Uh, you just have to. You know, if we're talking about a national monument in Utah, that's a that's a federal issue that affects our uh, our our district. Now, is Bear Ears in that district, or is that yeah, one? yeah? So Bears that Ears that is, that is a uh, is a really hot topic. Sure. In the third district. Sure. And so that's going to be something that uh, that I will have to address. And how does your opponent feel about Bears Ears? That's a great question. We'll have to ask No him. stance at all, John Curtis. John Curtis doesn't even care about Bears Ears, everybody. You heard it here first. No, I'm just saying we'll ask him. Devin does. John. Okay, so John Curtis, oh, open, genuine invitation. If, if John Curtis, people would like him to be on the podcast and speak about his life in Congress from a Latter-day Saint context. Uh, and his reelection, I'm happy to do that. I'm not. Try- I'm not here to play favorites. You know, Devin's a co-host. That's great. Didn't know he was running for Congress. Um, and we wish him well in the sense that, you know, I wish him well as my friend. But I we're not we're not endorsing Devin's campaign or anything like that on this show. But we are happy to be a platform for him to discuss it. So I want to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not telling you all how you need to vote. Um, let's see. So what are the main, before we move on, of course, we have, you know, you know, issues for the show to discuss today. We do have a lot. Uh, yeah, we do. But what's like, if you get elected, what, of course, climate change is your big priority. Are there any other like major yeah. salient issues? Like yeah. pollution is a big issue in Utah, sure but it's, it's, the, it's a huge issue, of course, in Salt Lake County because it's in a bowl and, you know, you have the inversion issues. But, but air quality is actually worse in Utah County. Is, is that's what I was wondering? Yeah. I always assumed it was worse in Salt Lake County and Utah County. It wasn't quite as densely populated, so it uh, there's wasn't something. I think it's it, it is. Um, I think it's a function of the these high mountain valleys. Yeah, uh, and for whatever reason, the the air is worse in in uh, Utah County much of the time. So know? what do we do about that? What's the solution? Well, I'm really excited. I, I'm really excited about the future, and and so you know, at the margin, I think government plays a role in accelerating a clean future. And we do this by incentivizing renewable energy and electric cars. And, uh, you know, some people get wound up about that, but electric cars are just, you know, they're just cool. Uh, I'm sorry. They, they, they you know, the, no tailpipe emissions. And uh, once we switch over to renewable energy, uh, they'll be clean, you know, stem to stern. Uh, and it, it really is exciting. 
Now, uh, naysayers might argue that what about all the pollution involved in manufacturing the electric cars? What about exploiting yeah. the land for the lithium, for example, yeah. for the batteries? What do we what do we do about what do we say about that? Is it is it proven that that will be that that is still cleaner? Yeah, fossil the, fuels. Yeah, for sure, because we extract lithium once for a battery that could last 20, 30 years. And new battery technology looks like it might last for two or three times that length. Uh, Tesla just recently uh, patented a or bought a patent to battery technology that could last a million miles uh, of charging, you know, so huh. thousands and thousands of charge yeah. recharge cycles. So imagine you could buy a car as a 16-year-old and leave it to your grandchildren. That's that's the kind of battery technology we're talking. That would be about. legit. Yeah. So, so I think there, you know, the the, the uh, when you compare pulling lithium out of the ground once for a twenty year asset, or what could become a thirty, fifty, hundred year asset, compare that to pulling uh, fossil fuels out of the ground for every trip to the grocery store. There's just no comparison. All right. I'm going to have to take your word for it. I'm going to choose to believe you. Oh, thank you. Uh, my friend. Well, uh, before we move on, Devin, now, where can people, if they're interested, find more information about your, uh, your, can- before this real quick, would you, what do you say to people who might say you're running in Utah's third district? This is uh, quixotic to a fault. Someone's going to think that. Yeah. What is your response to that? Yeah. There is no question uh, that this will be the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, win or lose, the effort required will be a hundred percent of what I can give. Um, but I believe that there is a path to success. Uh, and that path, uh, will require me to get my message thoughtfully and thoroughly in front of every person in the district to make sure that everyone who can be convinced is convinced. And that quite frankly, will take a lot of money. So that's my main job these days is, uh, raising money for a campaign where we can get our message in front of every person in the district. Yeah, isn't politics fun? How you have to spend so much of your time just yeah. getting money. And I do hope, money. I desperately hope and, and would certainly promise to, to advocate in Congress and vote for every and any kind of fi- campaign finance reform that would reduce the dependence on fundraising because it does have unequivocally a corrupting influence on on campaigns and on politics uh, in general. Would you support bills for straight up publicly funded federal elections? As an alternative to what we've got now, for sure. It would be far, far better. Far, yes, far as better. an alternative. Yeah. And, and essentially uh, banishing private donations. Yeah. Uh, I'm, ass- I'm going to assume ha- that you have a negative feeling about Citizens United. Yes. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, the It is scary to imbue corporations with the uh, rights of personhood. Uh, you know, there is a difference between a group of people and people. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, definitely uh, not a fan of, of that ruling. If, if listeners, if you're unfamiliar with Citizens United, it's, I would argue, the most consequential Supreme Court ruling of the past 10 years, save perhaps the one that legalized same-sex marriage. Um, it 
as Devin said, it it ruled that corporations are people that money is a form of free speech and you can't deny that under the First Amendment. And so that is why you hear about super PACs today. Super PACs didn't exist before Citizens United. There were always PACs, political action committees, but super PACs were a whole other thing with unregulated, unfettered funds and access uh, so long as they don't coordinate with a an actual candidate. So if Devin, for example, were to set up a, were to have if others set up a super PAC to advocate for Devin's campaign, legally speaking, Devin can't coordinate their efforts with his, even if they're working on his behalf. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Yes, yes. Uh, right? That's so, consistent with my understanding. So uh, Citizens United opened up the floodgates of money, and there are many who are critical of it because they feel that it, while money may be speech, it has made our elections so it is just nothing but massive corporate interests can just just chuck unlimited money at whatever they want. And that's where we're at today. And that's why we see there's so much more money in politics, even than there was 10 years ago nowadays. Yeah. So it's a, and it's a tough thing. You might feel that money is speech. I get the argument behind that. So, you know, how do we find the, uh, the balance? Um, are there any other, is there any other big pieces of federal legislation, not just for Utah, but in general that you want to sink your teeth into or anything you want to overturn in the house that hasn't, where that hasn't happened yet. Do and also do you want to lead the charge to get rid of Nancy Pelosi and become speaker in your first term? Um I would make an awesome speaker, but no. Um no, I I think uh Nancy has already agreed uh to go after two more years. She obviously will be the speaker for two more years and then she will not be ever again. Uh, that would is you settled. tear up a copy of the State of the Union for fun? Um well, I wouldn't promise never to do that, uh, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, I'm more bad-tempered than she is. Uh, so I, I could see things getting out of hand. But uh, we, we do have to remember that uh, the President of the United States uh, uh, dismissed her by refusing to shake her hand when he walked in. Uh, so it was a little bit of immature tit-for-tat uh, in that session. but. Um, sad that we see that in our politics. And I, I really believe truly uh, that there is so much more that we agree on uh, as humans, as Utahns, as Americans, uh, than we disagree on as Democrats and Republicans. Um, there are a long list of things where in terms of our values, we agree. We agree that we should take care of senior citizens. We agree that we should educate our children. We agree that everyone should uh, have some form of access to health care. We disagree a little bit about how that should be delivered, et cetera. But, but there's really not much of a voice. There are some extreme libertarians, I think, who argue that, no, we, the government shouldn't provide any access to health care, but very few people take that view. Um, even on the most divisive of topics, which I can think of is, which is abortion. Uh, we all agree that fewer abortions are better than more abortions. All else equal, fewer is better. Uh, no one, despite what some Republicans will tell you about Democrats, no one is advocating for killing babies or fetuses. Uh, that's just not what, uh, Democrats are about. Um, so I think we all agree on even difficult questions fundamentally. Uh, and so once you get away from value judgments, and if you can agree that we agree on value judgments, 
and then separate the tactics we use to accomplish those shared values. I think it gets a lot easier to have meaningful conversations about the tactics. Uh, and if we can come at those tactics with an open mind, I think we can find real solutions. And for all the crap that she gets, uh, you know, the House is working much more effectively than the Senate. Uh, the Senate is the logjam in our Congress for getting stuff done. When the Republicans had a majority in the House, whether you like it or not, the Republican House passed legislation like 60 times to reveal, repeal the ACA. The House got stuff done. And now under Nancy Pelosi with the majority in the House, that the House continues to regularly pass bills. The House is getting stuff done. The Senate is the problem. And really, uh, I will say, Mitt Romney demonstrated the kind of courage that senators need to have in order to bring governance, real constructive governance back to the Senate um, because he was willing to break with his party on a critical vote. And when people will do that in the Senate, then uh, we can start having some real governing going on in this country. And what it will force is compromise. Um, my politics, and you've teased me about this a lot, but my my politics are pretty left, but I would call myself a pragmatist. Ultimately, I, I think we're going to have to have compromise. We've got to come to terms with each other and use a bipartisan approach. And, uh, you know, I've never been a huge fan of Orrin Hatch, but one of the most important pieces of legislation to pass in his career under his leadership was one that he did in partnership with uh, uh, Ted Kennedy. Uh, that provided insurance for children, uh, CHIP, it was called. And, uh, it nearly died last year, but I think it, I think it was resurrected at, at the last minute. Uh, but an incredibly important program that pr guarantees health insurance for kids, uh, so that even if their parents don't qualify for Medicare, the kids can get the health insurance through CHIP, uh, which is, you know, just right. It's just right. And Orrin Hatch, representing a state that had lots and lots of children recognized that was the right thing to do. And, and Ted uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, being an advocate for all these sorts of things uh, was thrilled to partner with him on it. And together they got that done. That kind of bipartisanship, I uh, am eager to get back to looking for opportunities to collaborate across the aisle, compromise, strategize. There are solutions there and, and we, we just have to take them, but it will require that kind of bipartisan work. Now to pivot quickly uh, yes. to, uh, to, you know, to the Latter-day Saint context, uh, there are many of our faith who will f just straight up be uncomfortable with the idea of voting for a Democrat because we have a lot of cultural norms and, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're deeply, you're intimately aware of all of yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what do you tell Latter-day Saints who honestly view the Democratic Party as if it is a, you know, as if it is. I don't want to say of the devil, yeah. but it, it is not doing it is not doing the Lord's work any favors. For example, what, real real quick, what is your? How do you sell that? How do you try to tell people that being a Democrat uh, does not mean that you are a faithless, yeah, uh, 
and it's not that you have, of course, have to be a faithful Latter-day Saint to be elected in Utah, of course. Right. But if you, but it, but if you want your Mormon listeners to have a feel for that, yeah. So the, I think the key issue is to understand that um, this this idea that you have to be a Republican to be a good Mormon is new. It is not old. Uh, it, it is not doctrine. Um, uh, when, as I was growing up. Uh, there were six terms of Democratic governor uh, in the state of Utah uh, as I was growing up. So the, my, the governor when I was born was a guy named Cal Rampton. He served four terms. And then Scott Matheson after him served two terms as governor in the state of Utah. Um, that is not that long ago. I think uh, Matheson's last term ended in about 1980. So, yes, it has been 40 years, but uh, a lot of people remember those days. In fact, people older than I in Utah tend to be more liberal on average in Utah than people younger than I am, at least near my age younger, uh, because the people near my age younger don't remember Scott Matheson and Cal Rampton. I'm just old enough to remember them, uh, but... Gen Xers, my generation, generally don't remember that. And so they're very conservative. The younger folks, the millennials and now the Gen Z folks who will be voting for the first time probably uh, in in November, uh, they tend to be more liberal too. Um, they're okay uh, with Democrats. It's really my generation stuck in the middle of this sandwich. Okay, boomer. Arbor, you know, so – yeah, I got to count on some boomers with memories of Scott Matheson and Cal Rampton to to get me elected. Cool. Well, there we go. Anyway, good times there, Devin. Uh, Thank you. We're ex- I'm sure you'll be back. I know you'll be very busy, but hopefully, you won't take a sabbatical from popping in and still hosting the show. I would every, be honored would every be honored. four or five weeks. So we'll be curious to hear how things are going. Uh, so now let's talk about Latter Day Saint news. In case you have not been following it, there's a wee little virus going around the world (laughs) known as coronavirus causing a disease, COVID-19. This is this is going down, you know, and and we're not doing the politics of it right now and and various countries responses or lacks of responses or muddled responses. But what we do know is that it is, of course, affecting uh, our own faith and our missionaries a lot of our programming efforts, all sorts of things going on are now in question uh, because of the coronavirus outbreak. So we've learned quite a few things uh, in the past week. So one, as you might imagine, we're very concerned about missionaries around the world, but primarily in Asia where a lot of this is concentrated. So as the church is trying to do its very best to keep the missionaries safe, uh, they're essentially, this isn't across the board, but basically house arresting-ish uh, missionaries throughout Asia, from Cambodia through Japan and Korea and Mongolia and Singapore and Thailand. Curiously, no Indonesia in the mix, which actually is kind of interesting for Singapore, because I believe Indonesia is a separate mission from the Singapore mission, um, and Thailand as well. Now, all prospective missionaries preparing to serve in those missions or who come from those countries will either postpone their start date or receive a temporary assignment elsewhere. Uh, all missionaries currently serving in those missions who are nearing the end of their service, they don't specify what that exactly means in terms of proximity to the end, uh, will return home early. 
All senior missionaries, hear that? All senior missionaries and any young missionaries with chronic health problems will also return home or be temporarily reassigned. Uh, There are still a few differences based on mission that are outlined in the statement by the church. Uh, Anyone who returns home is going to be self-isolated for 14 days following instruction from the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control in the United States. So that's fun. Uh, Basically, all the temples in the region are shut down. Taipei, Taiwan, Seoul, Korea, the two two open temples in Japan and the Hong Kong Temple and the Tokyo Temple are both uh, closed for renovation right now. So that's fun. And also, Sunday worship has been largely curtailed. We've talked about that a little bit, but uh, Hong Kong, Mongolia, Korea, Japan, a lot of these places are just canceling services almost altogether. So wow, that's, that's just Asia. Now, on our side of things as well, by our, this is a global show, but here in the States, mm-hmm. uh, the church has announced that for the April General Conference, which is only four weeks away, out of concern for public health, they have canceled the leadership sessions for general authorities, which are held in the days before the main uh, weekend sessions that all of us watch. Uh, they've been postponed for six months until the October uh, session. So those serving outside the United States and Area 70s are asked not even to travel. So if you're posted abroad as a general authority, stay where you are, unless potentially you're in a major outbreak country and they want to move you for safety's sake. But that's going down too. Um, my big question from this is, where does it end? Like, if this keeps getting worse in the next couple of weeks, is there a chance they're going to say, guys, conference, as you know it, is not happening? Like, we'll still have speakers and, like, people in Utah will speak, but they're just going to speak from, you know, the, you know that faux living room they set up for mm-hmm, broadcasts, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of a thing. Or maybe from the, from the conference center. I wonder if it'll get to the point where they say, look, a large assembly of 20,000 people is not a good idea right now. So we're still going to broadcast this so you all can watch it, but no one show up for conference. Um, I don't I like, do you think it'll get to that? I don't know. Yeah. Would they it's a make that call? Great, great question. What are you hearing at USAID? You must have some insights into what what the federal Unfortunately, government. no one is talking about the Mormon response to co- to coronavirus <laughs> uh, at work. <laughs> but the uh, Mormon response is guided by uh, what smart people say. Uh, I'm not here. Have- I mean, I'm not. I'm not hearing a ton in terms of the aid and development side of things. That's just being smart and playing it by ear. And obviously, if there are programs in some of the affected regions, uh, those might be slowed up. I'm not working actively in the. Uh, the programming area. I work in the in the policy shop, um, so I'd say the ones who govern that a little bit more would be State Department, which handles a lot of the travel restrictions, and of course the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the sort of things that come out of their neck of the woods. So we're mostly like any agency, just sort of listening for guidance. But because, of course, USAID has a presence abroad, uh, you know, it's being smart with your people. A lot of this is just be smart with your personnel, and if there is a risk, don't. If, if you can't travel back to the States, then just get in a safe place and don't, don't expose yourself. So I just, uh, for conference, man, it's funny because they've talked about how this will be a general conference like we've never seen before. And I'm really hoping it doesn't become this ironic twist where it's like, yeah, because we're not having it yeah. this time around. The, the famous conference all about the first vision, if this whole thing's going to have to be scuttled. Uh, and I'm sad to say I've seen a lot in some sort of ex-Mormon circles you know, snarky comments of like, if only there was like a prophet who could predict these things happening, 
Yeah. Wink, snark, wink. Snark, right. Snark, snark. Yeah. Some snark. So, um, I'm not even going to say president Nelson doesn't know these things are going to happen, but the Lord also isn't necessarily going to have his prophet go out and say, Hey, everyone in a couple of months, this virus is going to come out of China and it's going to cause problems. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, so it's crazy though. It's happening yeah. right now. I, mean, I, I don't, I know people are freaking out a little bit. Uh, I don't know how you're feeling. I'm feeling like I just want, I'm, I am checking my emergency preparedness checklist a little bit more over the past week. I think we've been just making sure we have stuff, uh, just in case, but hopefully it never gets anywhere closer to that. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, comes up as a result of coronavirus is a uh, discussion of how we do the uh, sacrament. Mm, and A good question because yes. it's not the most hygienic practice when you actually think about it. Yeah. The, yeah. the you know, the, the priests in my experience are really good about sanitizing their hands now because it's just so easy with Purell or whatever to, to sanitize your hands before you break the bread and, and, and do the water and, uh, you know, putting water in clean little cups is pretty sanitary. So it's not, not uh, a big deal, uh, at the sacrament table, but the deacons, I mean, we're talking about 12 year olds after all may or may not have washed their hands and they are, so then they're passing the trays, you know, so that, you know, every tray is probably touched on average by about 40 people. At least. Uh, And and so that's a lot of, a lot of touching. And some of them are six-year-old kids with runny noses. Uh, So uh, it is. By the way, real quick, before you continue, you know, what's really interesting is what the handbook says now, the new general handbook about sacrament preparation and the exact verbiage says those who prepare, bless, or pass the sacrament must first wash their hands with soap or other cleanser. Now, I've always seen the priests, when I was a kid, we literally just like dab our fingers in a bowl of water. I think now they're being better with Purell. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen deacons yeah. cleanse their hands before passing. No, I've never seen they, that in my life. Because they're just holding the handle. They're not touching the food. But of course, you know, the, the sacrament. But, but, so, of course, but so is everyone else, right? Right, everyone right. Yeah. Handle, yeah. Yeah. So you touch the handle and then you touch the food or vice versa. And so uh, if you pick up something from the handle of that tray, uh, it doesn't matter whether you touch the food before or after the, the sacrament. I keep calling it food. It is food. But 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 the, the, the thing is, you're going to touch your mouth. You're going to touch your eyes. You're going to scratch your nose. I mean, uh, if there's something on that sacrament uh, tray, uh, you're going to pick it up and you're going to get it uh, sitting there for two hours before, you know, or an hour before you go use the restroom and wash your hands. So it is an interesting issue to think through whether a change in protocol, even temporary would make sense. So like, well, what should we do? Um, I don't know, but I think, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. An Stop having the sacrament. It's over. Um, yeah. Um, you know, somebody- there, there, there was a piece, I think, on By Common Consent that sort of talked about this a bit. Sam Brunson writes some good stuff. I, I appreciate his thoughts on things. I, and one thing I learned from this is I believe during the influenza epi- pandemic back in 1918, um, the church did shift gears a little bit on the sacraments. So apparently in some of the earlier days of the church, much like the Catholics, there was actually a communal cup for the wine or then the water, right? And, and Catholics taking part in Eucharist still do that. Typically speaking, it can vary by tradition, but there's, even if they have the one wafer placed on their tongue, there's a single chalice 
from which everyone sips and they wipe it down between people. But come on, like what good is that going to do? So this used to be a Latter-day Saint thing too. And I love this quote that it said, uh, back when, turn of the century times or so, the front rows of the meeting house were the most coveted seats in the 19th century because by the time the cup reached the back of the room from being passed around, uh, some reported that it contained all kinds of debris, hair, foul smells, uh, etc. And so people would deliberately sit in the front so they could have the less contaminated sacrament water and the flu pandemic uh, accelerated moving away from that and moving towards the the single cups that we all have now uh, instead of sharing a cup, which I think is pretty darn interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I had thoughts about the Catholic approach, though. Like, what if we if we can do that, if we can get rid of passing around one single cup? amongst ourselves like why can't we just say everyone just line up if you're going to take the sacrament yeah and let's let the priests no trays just like either hand you the bread i don't think we have to have them put Mm -hmm. that in your mouth or anything like that i don't think we have to do it like that hand the bread and then the same thing as far as the water i don't know have the water not on a tray with handles maybe out on some kind of like cafeteria type tray something that we could figure out where where they could pass it to individuals so there is not as much germ sharing potential, maybe. That'd be very Catholic of us in that sense. Uh, but I don't know. could be different. It, it is uh, an interesting idea. Uh, one of the things that could grow out of that, if, if, we, if everyone in the congregation doesn't take the sacrament every week, it would take the shame out of not taking the sacrament. Uh, if it became, <laughs> right, right. So, so right sure. now, if you're, if you are, uh, if you have restricted membership rights and are asked not to partake of the sacrament, it is an awkward experience at church and it discourages people from coming to church. So it would be an interesting exploration to shift our tradition to be a little bit more Catholic so that instead of opting out in an uncomfortable way, people opt in when they're feeling like it's an important week to renew our baptismal covenants rather than do it rotely uh, and maybe unthinkingly every single week. I don't know. Just a, just now thought. I have seen, um, by the way, one thing we could also do that the Catholics do is technically you're supposed to uh, fast like for an hour, but you're not supposed to eat any kind of food or drink for the hour before communion. So that would be, it's a minor thing, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, how many of us are, coming straight from breakfast or how many of us have young kids and, Oh, you better believe I'm mooching some of those goldfish yeah, you know, during the opening yeah. hymn, right? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've seen anecdotally, at least some comments on our, on our page is that in Japan, I don't know if this is a permanent practice, but to avoid the passing of germs, the deacons are wearing gloves and walking the pews themselves to bring the bread and the water to individuals. So, uh, completely removing the issue of grabbing the trays of all right. of us sharing our fingers on the trays. That's that might a be a decent. Yeah. That might be decent. I mean, obviously, our pews aren't typically designed to have enough leg room for someone to comfortably walk. Mm-hmm. You know, walk around. But uh, that might be a fair approach, even if not like just yeah, just latex gloves are fine. You know, just everyone just grab some latex gloves and walk around. Who cares? It's sanitary. Shows we know what we're yeah. doing. Yeah. It would, uh, in most chapels in our stake, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in our stake, most of our chapels would accommodate having people sit only on every other row of the sacrament, of the sacrament meeting. It'd be fully packed, but our chapels are half full. You could have it every other. 
That's so a good that the way. Deacon could walk down the empty row and pass it over the back of the. Pew. Right. Yeah. You just you just have to mandate it. It wouldn't work in my my uh, building. We're actually full. We don't have a huge building, but we have like two fifty there every Sunday. Oh yeah, it's kind of full for our space. So, but if we in had two hundred and fifty people in our sacrament meeting. Someone would think the second coming had happened. Have some faith, people. Yeah. What's going on there in Representative Thorpe's district with yeah. your faith? Yeah. Come on. I don't know. Utah That's third. Crazy. <sighs> All right. Um, I Here's one. I'm personally involved in it. So, you know, can't be a part of the story. Can't be a part of the story. But I don't care. So they finally announced the open house dates and rededication dates for the Washington, D.C. temple. We have been suffering for two years this month since they closed the temple down for a massive refurbishment, the longest of its history. And we've wondered for some time, it was supposed to go down initially for, quote, two years. Uh, they closed it right around the same time as the Oakland, California temple, and Oakland got rededicated like ages ago now. But D.C. has just been chugging along in its closed state, forcing us to drive to Philadelphia or now Raleigh, I guess, if you wanted to go to the temple and wanted to go south instead. Anyway, so good times for us. Just uh, This is big news for the Latter-day Saint community around here. They're going to dedicate the temple on Sunday, December 13th across three sessions. And the open house, though, will be much earlier than that from September 24th through October 31st for the general public. Uh, but they're going to run private tours for a week before all of that from the 16th through the 23rd of September. Uh, as you might imagine, this being the Washington, D.C. area, the VIP list for this gets extensive. They engage in a massive outreach campaign to get various dignitaries and influential people uh, to show up for this. Not that they don't show up for other temples, of course, but this is a temple in the that serves the capital region of the United States. So there are... Many people who come. Um, for reference, when the temple was had its open house and and subsequent dedication in 1974, the most high profile quote unquote VIP was Betty Ford, the first lady at the oh, time, yeah. barely first barely first lady at the time, but the first lady at the time. So I don't know. We don't. You know, I've I've talked to public affairs people in the region. I don't. I'm sure they have targeted lists. I don't know if they'll try to get like President Trump to go to this or not or. Uh, or what have you, but I imagine a uh, number of uh, extensive or extensive uh, important people will be there. Well, and this I'm sure they'll covered. try to get President Trump there. There's no I'm question sh- about that. I'm, I'm sure they will. And this has been covered heavily uh, in the media out here. This is a big okay. deal because the DC, the DC Temple is a major landmark. In oh, the yeah. If you've, if you've been out here, uh, it's right off of the Capitol Beltway, the big ring road freeway that goes around the region. And coming, so everyone knows. Yeah, coming from, coming from the east – uh, on that yes. beltway, yes, it is a spectacular yeah. sight because it just rises up right out of the freeway as you drive yeah. toward it. Yeah, right there. And it's, it's, it's so prominent right there, exactly, from the east. Um, it's beautiful. Everyone knows it. I mean, when traffic reports are on, they just say like, oh, there's a jam over by the temple. It's just called the temple, basically, colloquially. So it's a big deal. And a lot of people are going. And it's a great missionary opportunity, I think, for many of us out here because it's such a famous building. It's really easy to say, yeah, you know the famous temple? It's going to be open and you can see it. And I've I've had this discussion with many people already. And no one has been like, are you trying to convert me, Jeff? <laughs> they all just sit. Every reaction I've had has been seriously like I can actually go in the that te- the famous Mormon temple. I'm like, yeah, you can do it. And now we have a date. So That's I'm great. stoked and it'll be very nice to have the temple. It is my favorite temple. Open again. I hope is it? They, I hope they don't ruin what I loved about it. I fear that they will because- Okay. 
are you able to say what you loved about it on a in this forum? Or I, I, I I think so. Uh, okay. If I'm not, you'll have to edit it out. But uh, oh, make me do work. Okay. Yeah. So here, so the two things I loved uh, love about the temple. Uh, one is that the sections for the women and the men. Yes. Uh, yes. Touch. Yes, going. They touch. There is a rope down the center of the room that divides the women from the men, but. Uh, they don't usher you in in such a way, at least in my experience, attending the temple when I was there in 89 to 91, that you, so you, anyway, my wife would oh, run I, in, I would run in and we would sit next to each other. I, I can provide that. a little bit of, a little bit of an update on that. Did they um, stop that already? I'm, no, no, that should, it'll be preserved. And I've seen some mock-ups. It seems that they've said this has just been a major structural r- refreshment, but I think they've, you know, cleaned up and you know redone some surface oh, sure, yeah. but based on some of the some of the artists renderings much of it looks similar to what it was i don't know if they've swapped out wood paneling and what have you but the ordinance rooms appear to be the same layout Good. so what this means folks is you enter on the sides rather than entering in the front of the ordinance room and then there's an aisle in the middle of it the aisles are along the walls and then as Devin's saying, it's just one big set of seats. So if you sit in the middle, you can sit next to your spouse. The thing that's changed though, is for a long time, there's been no rope or anything like that oh. at all. So uh, there is a slight indicator in that on the armrests between the two sides, quote unquote, it's a little bit like thicker, but that's uh-huh. it. So really, if you sit next to your spouse, there's no obstruction whatsoever. You can just sit right next to him. Not even a great. rope. That's not even a rope. And I, and I'm with you there too. I love it. It's one of the few temples where you can just sit next to your spouse and enjoy the session right next to him, which is great. It is amazing. And then the other thing that I loved in my experience visiting that temple, and it may not be true just because of the growth of the church, but when I was there 30 years ago, attending that temple, uh, it wasn't crowded. It was the opposite of crowded usually when I was there. And so they didn't have the staff of volunteers like they do in the Salt Lake Temple, which is the opposite. So in the Salt Lake Temple, there are almost as many temple workers as there are patrons at any given time. And so they have lots of senior ladies uh, and to a lesser extent men, but mostly senior ladies that whose job it is to make sure that you never step out of bounds. But they don't have enough in D.C. to prevent that. So I remember one time just wandering the halls of the temple uh, <laughs> And it was so cool because nobody stopped me. I just wandered around looking at stuff. Uh, and who's going to, that makes me sad. Like, why would they stop you in Salt Lake? I mean, what's there? To, I mean, I get it. There's some places they don't want you like wandering into the Holy of Holies or something. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. But uh, yeah, yeah. I've never seen that there. I don't think it's for lack of use. I mean, it's it's a pretty well attended temple. We lost about a third of our district with the Philadelphia temple. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Being dedicated a couple of years ago. But it's, so it's busy, especially on the weekends, but I've never seen that. I mean, the whole design of the temple is different. Yeah, you just wander around. The one thing you can't do, you can go all the way to the top because the DC temple has a giant, a big assembly hall on the top floor, like a handful of temples. Uh, that is, the doors are not left open for that. You can take the staircase or the elevator up to the seventh floor, but they might be locked uh, if you want to check it out. And it's a cool space. So there's been a couple of times we've had stake meetings in there. Uh, and it's it's kind of like a modern spin on the the same assembly halls you see in Salt Lake or in Kirtland or in Nauvoo or or what have you. And there's only a few temples that do it. You know, Manti has one. The Temple in Dominican Republic has one. Interestingly enough, um, hmm. but, but yeah, I no. Did. So you can still you can still wander. You'll have to come back. You can wander around. I'm looking forward uh, to it. My my current job situation 
will demand it soon enough, but uh, yeah, it will, absolutely. Uh, it'll be a good excuse to get out there during in September, maybe uh, on a campaign trip of one sort or another, where I can come out, co- you know, time that to coincide with the open house. I will. That would be I cool. will take you on a tour, sir. Thank I'm curious you. to see what they'll do with the uh, cafeteria because, like a lot of temples. They stopped offering full-fledged cafeteria services many years ago. Mm. And uh, even though it's had the space for it, right, right. it's just not a thing a lot of the temples do anymore. So the space has mostly just had some random vending machines there and seats and this and that. But there's a lot of wasted space sort of on that lowest level. The baptism's down there on that lowest level. But so the rest of the temple has not been crazy utilized. So I'm just – I'm wonder what they're going to do with that if it, you know if anything since they've had the chance to address it they could just add some ceiling rooms down there i guess but i don't know yeah it could be like the la temple the los angeles temple has ceiling rooms just scattered all around the building it's so funny like there's yeah. there's like 15 ceiling rooms and they're just they're from the basement all the way up to the top they're just all over the place wow i've never never done the la temple i need to you go do that yeah i will so that's exciting and a real quick one that i think you'll appreciate devin because you have brazil connections uh because the brazilians i believe are funding your campaign and <laughs> trying to interfere in our elections you have a good sense of humor the church uh no, you served your mission in Brazil, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Argentina, but, which is next door. No, it was Brazil. It's what you told me. So <laughs> there's no missionaries in Argentina. So they've announced the. I actually genuinely thought you'd served in Brazil. I'm sorry. So this means right. less to you. But they've announced no. the, the 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 design for the temple in Brasilia, which is the master planned capital of Brazil. Yeah, and uh, they announced the temple some years ago, but it's been just sort of in stasis. And I'm very excited. Design, yeah. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's it's really low slung. It's going to be a single story temple of about 24,000 square feet. Not huge, but not not small small per yeah, se. That's, that's pretty uh, big. Yeah, no Moroni on it interestingly enough, but the style of it uh it, they're going for the modernist aesthetic, the almost Gucci style that a lot of Brasilia was designed in in the f- late 50s and 1960s. I love that they went for this. You know, they could have gone with you look at the, the uh, Rio de Janeiro temple is almost done. It's just sort of that the anonymous contemporary style that we do every now and then. Mm-hmm. But this one is like very much trying to capture the historical style of the master planned uh, capital of Brazil. So I think that's I love seeing the church sort of take some big swings here and yeah. there on temple architecture. That's pretty cool. Where did you develop your uh your own personal uh, design aesthetic and interest because you have, you get excited or not about the temples. Uh, it's fascinating. I, I, to me. Thank you. Um, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but I think I can credit the Manti temple a lot for stirring up my interest in that area. I mean, I've always th- thought temples are beautiful, you know, and I was, when I was a missionary, I grew to appreciate them more. But to me, a lot of temples, when you're that young, you know, what did I know? I knew, I knew the LA temple because that's where I went through for the first time. And that was my temple growing up. And Provo is a celebration of 1970s awesomeness. And then what? I went to the temple in Madrid, which was just like a kind of classic modern 90s temple. So I think when I was going to BYU and I had more temples in proximity in Utah and kind of temple tourism could be more of a thing in that sense. Uh, I started checking some of the other ones out, doing sessions and things. But when I went down to Manti for the first time, I remember it well. It was just a Saturday Saturday when I had nothing to do. And I said, you know, I'm just going to drive to Manti today and go to the temple there. Why not? 
Um, I had no girlfriend, shocking no one. And so I just drove down there. And Manti is such a cool temple. It's a one of the original pioneer temples, but they've done so little to it. They've added the annex and everything and they've updated it, but like it's still a live session like Salt Lake, but it doesn't even have flip down padded chairs. You still sit on the original wooden benches from when the temple was dedicated. And uh, you mentioned the, uh, the people in Salt Lake who keep you from, you know, going out of bounds. I think there's an element of that at Manti, but they're so proud of their temple there, this little regional temple. And you have to remember when the Manti Temple was built, Brigham Young thought the population center of Utah would shift down there through the San P Valley uh, instead of the I-15 corridor. So that's part of why they've got this prominent building down there. Um, but so the people there just love it. And you can ask them questions and they take you on these mini tours. It's like a living museum. Uh, yeah. they'll, they'll show you this desk that like Brigham, that like John Taylor used when they were building it. And the mar- architectural marvel that is the self-sustaining staircases that go up through the towers. Uh, like these are little features that have nothing to do with the worship, but they'll just show them to you if you ask about it. So I thought that was interesting. And I don't know, maybe that just sort of, yeah, I started keeping an eye out for interesting other things about temples. And I've always liked architecture in general. And I'm sorry, that's a very long answer. That's every right. Day, but, but it, uh, it reminds me of a story. Could I interject a story? Oh, sure. Why not? It's a temple story that you'll appreciate. You probably know it. It's certainly not my story, but but uh, in the visitor center in St. George, they're very fond of the story that uh, when the St. George Temple was built, it was built and designed with a very short, stubby steeple. A, and, I do think I know where you're going with this. And but Brigham, yeah. Young, Brigham Young said it needs to be taller. And I can't remember why Brigham Young didn't get his way, but it was built. Oh, and it's the people were tired of building the temple. Basically they were like, dude, let's just be done with this thing already. That was pretty much what it was. So it has a short stubby steeple. And uh, shortly after Brigham Young died, the uh, temple steeple was struck by lightning and burned. And so when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it tall like he had wanted. I know it's a pretty funny story, right? And, and people don't realize that, you know, you see it now and you think it's original, but you can look up old, pictures of that temple and oh no yeah i love stuff i love stuff like that history is so fun like the fact that we uh i like it when we've reappropriated existing church buildings to become temples like the temple in vernal or the temple in copenhagen in denmark for example i think that's just really neat that we go out of our way to do things like that or you know provo city center of course a more current example Mm -hmm. it's pretty neat to me and I, i i uh i've inquired a number of times i've wanted to have like temple architects people behind this on the show but I've been rebuffed pretty handily by leadership because they've. I've been told in no uncertain terms just that temple design approvals and just rest with the first presidency. Like that's it. Um, yeah. And like no one talks about it, which yeah. I can respect, but it saddens me a little bit because I would love – because it's clear that there are certain templates. You know, there are certain floor plans we apply to different temples nowadays, yeah. even if the exteriors are different. Uh, I just I would love to pick the brains of the people behind those efforts and just understand what goes into it because I think it's such an interesting study. I mean, how we accommodate Latter Day Saints and you hit that threshold of when you sort of merit a temple in terms of church demographics and all that stuff. So I had the privilege of serving the stake presidency with a fellow who was the stake president was a temple architect. Uh, and that's cool. It was, it was, you would, you would have loved and appreciated the experience even more than I, but I did enjoy being able to get the inside scoop on, uh, new temples and when 
he would never tell us anything we couldn't know, but we were always getting fun insights from him on the construction process and progress on the temples he was assigned to. And I think over the years he did about a dozen. That's uh, cool. One of my, uh, when they announced the temple from where I'm from in Orange County, California, the temple in Newport Beach, that was huge for us. We're like, no way. We're going to get like a temple right here in Orange County, you know, 15 minutes away or whatever. That was awesome because going to LA can be arduous to say the least to get out there just because of traffic and everything. Um, but the design for the Newport Beach temple was originally a lot more like the Sacramento temple listeners. If you look the two of them up taller, grayer, little more prominent, a little more lit up at night, all sorts of things. They made a lot of concessions in the end to satisfy the NIMBYs who didn't want the temple to be built. Mm -hmm. But it was an interesting lesson in PR because I read a lot about the city council meetings with Newport Beach when they try to present present designs. And the church's people would just go in there and say, what you need to understand is this is the way the Lord wants this temple to be. (laughs) And while while I had faith in that, I was like, yeah, you know, this is what the Lord wants. As I've matured in recent years, I'm like, how is that going to sell this to a right. municipal body? Like God wants the temple to be this tall and this color. But then we turn around and say, well, we can change it if yeah. it means getting. So that's yeah. why the Newport Beach Temple is squat and sort of salmon color. And they just tried to evoke the California mission architecture, yeah. which I thought was kind of a nice save. It worked, but uh, it was just funny. Anyway, so you have to remember te- a lot goes into building a temple in terms of the politics of just getting the approvals to build the dang thing yeah. anywhere. It's cr- except for Utah where they just rubber stamp the entire process. But, it it but- is a little easier in Utah. You know, earlier we were talking about the sacrament and something I, I thought was really interesting came up this week. Uh, Jana Reese, uh, whom I love and you don't, and that's okay. <laughs> this particle is not as bad though. I thought this one was okay. <laughs> yeah. She wrote an article about how the uh, prophet has started talking about taking the sacrament with the right hand and how that's now made it into the, the new handbook. Yes, and yes, and yes. this stunned her. And I thought that was interesting because it's something I've always been aware of. But, you know, I think sometimes these things that aren't written down, and I think the church is doing away with this idea of an unwritten order of things. I I think that's going away. And I think that is really good uh, to not hold members and especially leaders. There's a lot of talk in leadership about the unwritten order of things. And uh, I I just think it's so hard to enforce unwritten rules uh, that it, it has an air of unfairness to it. So I'm excited about that. But one of those things that was at least not talked about much and was never uh, written as a rule was that you should take and pass the sacrament with your right hand. And Jana did not know that. And she's, she describes herself as having uh, mixed handedness. So she uses her left hand for some things that uh, people that are right handed normally uses, use their right hands to do. And so she was stunned uh, that this was a thing. And it, I, what I was curious about, and Jeff, I want to know from you, how did you know, were you familiar with this idea of taking the sacrament with your right hand before reading Jana's article this week? Yes, I've heard about it in just in my years that it's a thing, but it seemed like it was another just kind of apocryphal, cultural, yeah. you know, unsubstantiated, whatever. I wonder um, if, you think and then that- I saw it make it into the handbook, and then in Jana's Jana's article was interesting. I thought it was interesting. Jana had never heard this yeah. in her time, especially given how 
how close she is to the the minutia of Mormon studies. Yeah. But it could be a gender thing, right? It could be that where you and I heard about it was in deacon's quorum because we had to pass the sacrament. I don't think I ever heard about it then. I don't know. I don't remember when I, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not the kind of thing you'd remember really, you know, hearing the lesson necessarily, but it soaks in. Uh, So I wonder if that's, that's why you and I know, and she didn't. Well, yeah. Or it could be just that she's ignorant (laughs) because I don't like her, as you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I love you, Jenna. You're the worst, yeah. I actually thought her article was kind of interesting because she went instead of I, I. The headline made me think she was just going to trash on the handbook, actually codifying this that it's something we should in fact do. And there was a little bit of that, but I thought it was more interesting to kind of. She talked more about the actual nature of the term of the the, the definition, in fact, of um, what was it? Ambidextrous literally means both rights. Like it translates to meaning you're using two right hands, that Mm -hmm. the right hand in world culture is the ideal hand for things. So much so that if you can use your left hand and your right hand in equal measure, it actually translates to the fact that you have two right hands because a left hand in and of itself is evil or whatever. And it really means you have like two right hands. So I thought it was actually kind of interesting. And she goes into some biblical stuff about it. So I'm not going to harp on Jana too much for this one. She didn't go down the road. I thought she might. So good for her. So a couple of quick things uh, that President Nelson invited us once again to focus on the restoration. Uh, and now he's used throw, throwing out the hashtag, hear him. So the second invitation of 2020 is how do you hear him? Obviously, this references the first vision when the Lord, when Heavenly Father uh, pointed to Christ and said, this is my beloved son, you know, hear him. And so President Nelson is asking us to think deeply, like, how do you hear him? What do you do to hear him? What are you doing to prevent yourself from hearing him? He invites us to take steps to hear him better and more often and to study the first vision and to understand it better uh, so that we can hear him more. So I like that we're just teasing out more of these items about the uh, the first vision and and things we can do to focus on it and study it. And it's crazy to me realizing now the conference is only supposed to be a month away where we celebrate uh, this huge experience. It still seems like it's, you know, three months out to me, but we're coming up right on it here in a matter of weeks. So I think it's cool. It's a great little campaign. That's a new hashtag that you can employ uh, in your social efforts, for example, as you're sharing goodness. So hear him. Yeah, that's a very uplifting piece. I'm now going to go to a a depressing little piece. Well, Uh, that makes sense. You're a Democrat running in Utah. So what else would you do? (laughs) But this, uh, when I was in the MTC, uh, a woman, what's her name? Um, McKenna, uh, McKenna Denson. Ah, yes, Ms. Denson. She and I were in the MTC about the same time. I don't know if we overlapped, but we were there during the same mission, mission, mission president in the MTC. And she accuses him of sexually assaulting her. And she's been seeking some form of recompense for the last several years and hasn't been able to get an attorney uh, even t- to take the case. Uh, and I guess the the judge this week uh, sort of put the process on hold and asked the church and her to seek mediation and see if they can come to a settlement on this issue. So this could... Uh, sort of be done, but it is, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It, this, this particular story has always felt 
particularly sad and uh, relevant to me because uh, it was my MTC mission president that she I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Kind yeah, of, I think this might wind, this might wind up being the last we hear about it. Once they, you know, once everyone signs NDAs and yeah. moves on, yeah. that's that's it. Uh, other couple of things. It was Rainbow Day at BYU. Of course, we talked last week about how BYU updated the honor code to sort of, I jokingly say, decriminalize uh, homosexual actions on campus. You know, for a while now with the honor code, you've been allowed to be gay. But if you were to kiss someone of the op- of the same sex or even probably hold hands around campus, that could be an honor code violation. It could It could imperil your... Uh, standing with the university, those clauses have been removed from the honor code. So this is not the first time there's been a rainbow day, which is a celebration of the LGBTQ community at the university. But this one, as you might imagine, had a little more weight behind it because it happened after the uh, after this new ruling. Everyone's saying, you know, love is love, having a good time. Everyone's having a great time. I really wonder what the mood is like on BYU campus with these sorts of things going on. Uh, I actually found an I don't think it's updated anymore, but a a group through Facebook and they had a website whose purpose was devoted to essentially they basically they were arguing that BYU had become infiltrated with professors who were no longer whose priority was no longer uh, the restored gospel and living gospel living and uh, that that the university become tainted and we had to get back to a more wholesome life. So something along these lines would naturally ruffle those feathers. Uh, quite a bit, but as we have Rainbow Day, which I honestly have no opinion of, you know, you do you. Um, definitely meant something else this time around compared to the past two versions of it, because everyone's just just holding hands and kissing and just loving their their best gay selves. Yeah, I was BYU talking to a couple of friends about this tonight, and and they made they reminded me that you know when. When they were at BYU, now this is, they were at BYU 45 years ago or so, uh, there were strict prohibitions on heterosexual PDA, public displays of affection. So, And maybe there still should be. <laughs> we've come a long way at BYU uh, to put things into perspective. Um, Actually, I don't think I ever saw anything that bad. I would have loved at BYU to straight up see just like a couple just making out right there in the quad, just sitting on a bench, just not even caring. That would have been like a flashback to my mission. Because those Spanish kids, dude, they are randy. Those kids just don't care at all. I just, it blew my mind how much PDA is not an issue in the Iberian Peninsula. That was just, so I wanted more of that at BYU. Yeah. And I'm tempted to tell you now a story of how I had a companion who would throw water balloons at these kids making out on benches. Oh, no. Uh, it doesn't sound very nice. Uh, he'd do it on Sunday nights when we do numbers. And he, he found – okay, fine. We're here. So he had a John Rocker jersey. If you remember John Rocker, he was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. he got into a bunch of hot water for some racist statements. He found this John Rocker jersey in our apartment. He'd put on his John Rocker jersey – Fill up water balloons because our kitchen was right next to a balcony. We lived on like the ninth floor of this big giant apartment building. And far down on a quad, down below, across the way, Spanish kids would be going at it. And I cannot emphasize this enough, folks. It's not like they just hold hands and mack a little. I don't want to be too crude. But you're talking in normal public situations like kids can be playing at a park and a mom can be watching them. And right next to her, a girl's like straddling a boy making out. Like that's how this country functions. It's 
it's interesting. So they'd be doing their thing at nighttime and my companion would fill up water balloons and just hurl them from our balcony in the direction of the youths and sometimes hit them, sometimes not. I chose a blind eye approach to this and mostly laughed to myself, but did yes. nothing to stop to stop yes. it. I was a very, I was a good and effective <laughs> district leader, wasn't I? Oh my heavens. Oh my heavens. Anyway, that, oh, that was the big thing. Anyways, uh, let's see. Only other main thing I want to get into the LDS film festival wrapped up over this past week. Uh, the fighting preacher, which came out some time ago, won one of the top awards, the movie about a preacher who fights. I know nothing else about it. Cause I haven't said anything about it, but also, a movie called The Heart of Africa won some big awards. And there's a great story uh, in the Daily Herald about the making of this film because I really love the effort that went into it. I mean, they uh, essentially the producer, uh, Margaret Blair Young, for example, a producer and co-writer of the movie, wanted to kickstart the film industry in the Democratic Republic of the Congo because it doesn't exist. Africa, of course, has a film industry. You know, the, of, across this whole continent, there are some countries where it's centered. Uh, Nigeria is a very big film production hub. South Africa does a lot of it. And there were many who said, maybe you should just film this in South Africa and, you know, let it stand in for the DRC. And they said, no, we're going to try to do this for real and use people from the DRC and film it in the DRC. And so it's a pretty interesting article to get into just what what went into making this film. And I really, I just applaud them for uh taking a big risk, especially, you know, in the underfunded indie world of, of Utah cinema, you know, good for them. Awesome. Just love it. I haven't seen the film at all. I can't speak to its merits, but awesome story about it. The, the one last thing I would, would throw into our discussion tonight uh, for our last item is that there was uh, two missionaries attacked in Payson, which seems to me to be unbelievable on so many levels because, uh, there are lots of LDS people in the community. It's incredibly, by its sort of nature and design, it's a, a community that's ecumenical to the st- extent that it's not uh, LDS. And yet uh, two missionaries were attacked, and one of whom was uh, uh, a uh, African-American or maybe an African uh, here in America, which is to say not uh, an African-American, but an African-African. Uh, it didn't say, but uh, yeah, beaten up because of his race in in Payson. I just find it unbelievable. And so they they've been charged with uh, hate crimes, uh, which is just uh, tragic, tragic beyond belief. Uh, no, it's terrible this happened. I mean, I'm glad people were charged, but it's terrible to think that yeah, this would happen anywhere. But like you said, in you know Payson, so far southern Utah County, that they would attack a missionary yeah. of color. Yeah, just uh, unbelievable. Well, but great like note said, to end on, Devin. Thank you for that. Yeah. Those would be your those would be your constituents, would they not? Is Payson in your district? Yes, and so kudos to uh, the Payson police for prosecuting this aggressively. Kudos, kudos, kudos. Do you support the death penalty for these young men? No, <laughs> no. Uh, Doesn't Utah still do it by firing squad? Isn't that still a thing in Utah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. You live in an interesting place, my friend. Very interesting. So, uh, folks, you can go to, I'm assuming, if you want to learn more about Devin, I'm assuming you can go to devinthorpe.com or vote Devin or something like that. Yeah, I prefer, I prefer vote Devin. I like uh, vote Devin. I like vote Pedro. Yeah. But vote or Devin. Devin, the number four, and then the letter U. 
Devin for you yeah. uh, dot dot fr because it's going to be from friends. <laughs> um, you can go see us at thisweekinmormons.com. Yes, we are from the Comoros, like all of the internet. And uh, once again, subscribe if you have not done so. Please leave us a review. We'd love that. And if you haven't subscribed on Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash This Week in Mormons. It's a great way to support the show by pledging at minimum a dollar a month, ideally at least $60 a month. I'll let you find the happy place in between. But I've been told that a dollar is too little. So I'm upping my ask to $60 a month. You don't need to feed your family. Have faith. <laughs> Just as you would pay your tithing and not feed your family, I cannot offer you a bishop's storehouse or anything like that. I'm not in the position to do so, but I can offer you love and entertainment. And if you come to DC, I'll take you on a tour of the temple happily and with my compliments. Um, So Devin, good luck. I look forward to checking in on how everything's going on this front. Uh, We'll see what happens there. John Curtis, come on the show here and defend your record. We'd love to talk to you too. Why not? Everyone, we love you for being here. Thanks for listening to This Week in Mormons. And we hope you have a terrific remainder of your week. Until we meet again, be well, be holy, and be happy. Oh!